kind of uh, vying for a special, right? You want to sing a Build My Life next Sunday, maybe? <laughs> All right. We're going to continue worship and prayer this morning. Um, Psalm 23. You know that one very well. Psalm 23, verse 2 says, He lets me lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside quiet waters. And of course, as you know, the more traditional translation of that, he makes me lie down or maketh me lie down in green pastures. Today, our theme is going to be slowing down, slowing down to the, the pace of God in our lives to walk with him. So as we open up God's word to hear the message Let's pray that he would slow down our hearts this morning, that he would make us lie down in green pastures to eat of his word that he provides for us there. Pray that for yourself this morning. Father, slow down our busy hearts so that we can hear from you. Lord, open up our eyes to see amazing, wonderful things in your word. Help us to fear you and reverence you and, and worship you and your awesome holy name this morning. Please, Lord, help us slow down. Help us to, to walk at your pace. Give us ears to hear, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, we all know about the COVID-19 pandemic, but there's another epidemic that is impacting millions and millions of people in America, and they don't even realize it. They don't even realize how they're impacted by this epidemic. Writing in 2013... Uh, Dr. Susan Cohen, who practices medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital, wrote about this epidemic that she was noticing even then in 2013. She said, in the past few years, I've observed an epidemic of sorts, patient after patient suffering from the same condition. The symptoms of this condition include fatigue, Irritability, insomnia, anxiety, headaches, heartburn, bowel disturbances, yuck, back pain, and weight gain. There are no blood tests or x-rays x diagnostic of this back condition, and yet it's easy to recognize. The condition is excessive or unnecessary Busyness. And I dare to guess that in the last 10 years since she wrote that, this has even become a greater problem because a lot of times when we're not physically busy doing something, 
we're engaging our brains by filling it with clutter, social media, watching, streaming shows, browsing the internet, constantly have to have something that we're, we're listening to. Tony Ranke, a Christian author, recently wrote a book called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. And I believe he's right. Our, our smartphone use, our technology use is enculturating us. It, it's changing us. It's changing the way that our brains and our minds function and work. I want to just name a few of these that he said. We're distracted for one. Get this. We check our phones 85,000 times a year. That figures down to every four and a half minutes. We feel this urge to pick up our phones and to check our phones. So we're distracted. Our phones are changing us. We're a hazard to others. Texting and driving makes us 23 times more likely to get in a car accident. We crave approval. For many people, each social media moment is another chapter in like a self-autobiography where everyone has to follow. We idolize celebrity. Our attention drifts. Constantly from headline to headline. And maybe we should add not just celebrity, but just we, we, it's not, it's, we're living in a rare time in history where we can find out what's happening halfway across the globe within minutes. So we feel this rush where we have to have 24-7 news constantly. And along with that is this, this, this idolizing of, of celebrity and the latest gossip and headline, but it's not limited to that. We become lonely with this. Um, social media promises connectivity, but at the same time, there's just this terrible epidemic of loneliness in our culture. And then we just get lost in the digital noise. Uh, the average daily social media and email output and I take that to mean in America in general, is much, many times larger than the Library of Congress. We lose track of time. The wonder of creation, the wonder of relationship with people, and especially our relationship with God gets squeezed out because we're so fixated on this constant need for stimulation. So the doctor mentioned those physical symptoms, and how this excessive busyness and then the clutter that's added to that impacts us. But there are even greater impacts to our mind, to our heart, to our, our soul. We're not created by God to have these hurried and distractive minds where we can't focus on any one thing for longer than a few minutes or even a few seconds. Spiritually speaking, we're not meant to be sprinters or runners through this life. We're meant to be walkers through this life. And the average walking speed for an adult is three or four miles an hour. That is the pace that God has designed us spiritually to walk. 
with him. As I was preparing for this sermon this week, it became increasingly clear how the life of faith and faithfulness in the Bible is described like a walk, walking with God. Think about how many times people are described in the Bible as walking with God. And actually did a search on Open Bible, which finds all references about any topic you want in the Bible. And I mean, there are dozens of references and verses in the scriptures about people walking with God. That's the pace that God wants us to take as we live our lives for him, a walking pace, not a sprinting pace, a, a walking pace. So we have to learn how to intentionally slow down. And that's what we're going to be all about this morning. We're going to take a look at a man who is said to have walked with God and then God took him to heaven because he was so close with God. This man's name was Enoch. And I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 5. We're going to learn about Enoch, and we're going to learn about walking with God. Now, Genesis chapter 5 is a pretty long genealogy, so I'm not going to read the entirety of the chapter or the genealogy. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8, and then we're going to jump to verse, verse 18 and go to 29. And that will kind of sum up this chapter for us. So, so Genesis chapter 5. Starting in verse 1. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he, he blessed them and called them mankind. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness according to his image and named him Seth. Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth. And he fathered other sons and daughters. So Adam's life lasted 930 years, then he died. Seth was 105 years old when he fathered Enosh. Seth lived 807 years after he fathered Enosh, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Seth's life lasted 912 years, then he died. Okay, now jump down to verse 18 with me. Jared was 162 years old when he fathered Enoch. Jared lived 800 years after he fathered Enoch, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Jared's life lasted 962 years. Then he died. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was not there because God took him. Methuselah was 800, 187 years old when he fathered Laman. Methuselah lived 700 years. 82 years after he fathered Lamech, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Methuselah's life lasted 969 years, then he died. Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son, and he fathered him, and he named him Noah, saying, 
This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. And we'll stop our reading there. So why a genealogy right here in the beginning of the Bible? Now, for us, most people, unless you've gone on to Ancestor.com or something like this, you don't know a lot about your family history, your, your genealogy. You know, some have, but most people haven't. But for the ancient Israelites, their history and their genealogy was everything because it was a record of their relationship with their covenant God. And this genealogy is important because it shows how God chose the line of Seth and through the generations chose a man named Noah who would then go on to father three sons, one of which through his family line would father a man named Abraham who was the direct ancestor of the Israelite people, the man God chose to make a promise to. And out of him and his descendants, God would make a, a great nation who would be given the land of Israel. So this was all about identity for the Israelite people. This was absolutely everything to them. So as we see a list of names on a page that seem kind of boring, they're seeing who they really are. They're seeing how God fulfilled his promises to them. And so should we, because without this plan of God, we wouldn't be saved. Without God using the line of Seth to give Noah to give Abraham, to give Moses, to give all the nation of Israel. And then through the nation of Israel, we have a Messiah, Savior, who is Christ the Lord, who is Savior of all the people. So as we read this genealogy, we need to read into it our identity. This is how we came to be. This is how God sent our Savior. Since even the very beginning, God was preparing the way of Christ through this family line. So why genealogy at the very beginning of the Bible? Because of God's faithfulness. Because of God's initiative and plan to send us a redeemer. Another question stands out from this genealogy. Did people really live this long? I mean, you have people living 800, 900 years. You have people, men, fathering children in their 60s and above throughout this genealogy. Methuselah, the oldest man, oldest person who has ever lived is listed in this genealogy. He lived 969 years old when he died. Now, what are we to make of this? Well, I believe it has to do with the fall of man, the first sin. We were never made to die. We were made to live forever. Our bodies were meant to last forever. 
It's not a natural thing that we get sick, that, that we die, that people have genetic defects. All of that came as a consequence of sin. And as time moves on in the Bible, as you get farther away from the Garden of Eden, then the lifespans of people start to decrease. We see people living well into their 800s, 900s years old here in this genealogy. But then by the time of Abraham, thousands of years later, he lived 175 years and then in Psalm 90, Moses writes that by his time, lifespans were much shorter. He said, our days may come to 70 or years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. So maybe we should think of this in another way. A lifespan of a thousand years is nothing when compared to eternity. It's very short compared to eternity. So, so why not 800 years? Why not 900 years? So it's my belief that these people really did live that long. And other evidence for this, too, is just the specific numbers that are used there. Um, he, the author, who was Moses, was, doesn't seem like he was summing up these ages. There are parts in the Bible where they'll say 400 men, 400 people in an army or something like that. Probably, if they're using a round number like that, you can legitimately assume that they're, they're just rounding it up. They're, they're summing up the number of the people there. But here, where it's so specific, I mean, Seth lived 807 years. Likely, it's specific because he really did live 807 years. Why else would they be so specific? So it's my belief that the Bible is true, that this is accurate, and they really did live that long. And that's something else that's important about this genealogy, a lifespan in general, meaning death. After every name in this genealogy, we hear, then he died. We hear this repeated over and over again, then he died. And it's meant to just shock us. Because we were never made to die. God made us, Adam and Eve, in the garden to live with him forever, to walk with him forever, to glorify him forever. And it's intentional on the part of Moses, the author, to put this in there. And then he died. Then he died. He's driving home the point that death is not a natural state to Human, humanity. Death came because of sin. And because we've born, been born into sin and because we personally sin, we die. Death is not God's design for human beings. And we, as we read this genealogy, it should stand out like a billboard 
that he made us for life, that death was not originally part of creation. It should shock us. It should remind us that we all need a Savior to bring us back to God who can grant us life. Enoch is an example. He's an, an exemption, I should say, in this genealogy of death. He's an example of one who was granted life. He did not die because Enoch walked with God. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then he was not there because God took him. Before Enoch died, God took him to heaven because he centered his life around God. He walked with God so intimately. God just took him to heaven before he died. He never experienced death on this earth. Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith chapter, tells us a little bit more about Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. So Enoch's life of walking with God at his pace Please God deeply. And he was rewarded for that. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And we believe that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The phrase walking with God, it's a comparison of a life with God. A life where God is all in all. A life where God is at the center of everything. It's a life of closeness and, and intimacy with God does not mean Enoch was sinless, but it does mean he was consistently faithful in all of his dealings. He devoted himself to God and above everyone and everything else. We're told in the New Testament that the reason why Jesus came to earth to live for us, to die for us, to rise again victoriously was to reunite us to God, to reconcile us to God, so that we too can walk with God. Did you hear that? The average Christian who knows Christ can walk with God like Enoch did. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. So there you have it in the New Testament. And I'm telling you, if you do a search, this phrase, walk, is everywhere throughout the Bible. It describes the life of faith that God intends for us in our lives. What that means is we used to be walking apart 
from God. I don't know if I said the reference there. That was Romans 6, 4. It says we used to be walking in this old way. But through faith in Christ, he died, we die to the old us. We come alive through faith in Jesus Christ to live, to walk in a new kind of way. And the way that's possible is through the gospel, through the new life promised to those who believe. That if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. We can now live a new life of, of walking with God. We can leave the old behind, the old us. It's dead. We don't have to live in those same ways anymore. And we can begin to live in newness of life, walking with God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 puts it like this. For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The, the reason why Christ suffered and died for us was so we can stop living or walking our own way and we can turn around and follow Christ. We can follow Christ as our Lord and Savior, as his disciple, we can follow in his steps. We can begin to imitate Christ. We can begin to walk in a new kind of way. So if the new purpose of our lives is to walk with God closely and intimately, we've got to learn how to walk at his pace. Spiritually speaking, his pace it's not a run, it's not a sprint, it's a three or four mile an hour walk. We've got to learn how to slow down our busy minds and our hearts so that we can pace ourselves to walk with God. He wants us to slow down to match his pace, to walk in his steps, as 1 Peter puts it. We don't ask God to do things our way. No, we've got to adjust to live our lives according to his ways. And today, as I started, one of the main obstacles to walking with God daily is what has been called by that doctor excessive, and I'm also using the term unnecessary, busyness. And by that, I don't mean busy in life in general. There are different seasons in life that are going to be busier than others. That's just part of life. That's not necessarily what I mean. What I mean is being busy internally in your heart, in your mind, where you're so busy that you feel constantly rushed, not just on the outside, but on the inside, where your mind is constantly cluttered and distracted, where it's incapable of going deeper in thought and reflection on the Lord. You're, you're hurrying internally. And this person, it, they have a busy heart where they can't possibly seem to, to slow down and reflect on the Lord and enjoy Him and walk with Him because of 
the busyness, the, the hurried soul has lost their capacity to be with God. Now, that's what I mean, and that's the epidemic that we face, and it's impacting people who know the Lord, but it's also impacting people who, who don't know the Lord. So what can we do to slow our pace spiritually so that we can begin to walk with God at his pace? Even if we have a lot to do in that season of life that we're in, even if we are busy, how can we not have this busy heart inside of us? One of the best steps that you can take, and I'm reluctant to work, use the word just steps because it, it's many different changes that have to be made. It, it's reforming. It's completely rearranging your habits, um, your, your daily routines, creating new ones, which help you change, which re they're not an end to themselves, but they help you to refocus on God and go deeper with him. In church history, this has been called a, a rule of life. It, it's a way to kind of organize and think about spiritual practices and habits so that your life is no longer just governed by a busy schedule. It, it starts to be governed by focus on God, where everything is centered um, around Him. Now, I would like to recommend using these habits, which are called the common rule, which help us focus on love for God and then love for our neighbor as well, other people and again, even in the busyness of life, these are, these are for busy people. This is coming from a book called The Common Rule by Justin Early. I would recommend that book if you're interested in this. And a couple years ago, I, I read this book, and it really helped me and impacted me. So I've kind of adopted these practices as my own, except for just with some variation. And I encourage you, if you want to pick this up, vary it for yourself, adapt it for yourself, make it your own, and they've really helped me a lot. So let's go over these habits at a glance. I have a, a graphic to show you and also have a handout. If you want to take a look at this um, out there on the table um, as you leave this morning. But on here... There, you're going to see two columns. There are daily habits, and then there are weekly habits. And all of the habits are either going to be vertical habits that mainly focus directly on your relationship with God. The others are going to be horizontal habits, which, of course, help your relationship with God, but they also help your relationship with God others um, as well, which is super important for the Christian life. All right, so let's look at this daily habits. It's, that's on our left, this daily habit column over there. Kneeling prayer three times a day. That's where he just encourages, doesn't have to be a long prayer, but just to pause and to kneel down, or if you, if you physically can't kneel down, just sit quietly 
and to spend just a little bit of time in prayer, just refocusing on God and then do that three different times a day. The next daily habit is one meal with others. So for a lot of people, that's a really hard thing to do because a lot of the meals that you eat are just really quick and they're solitary, they're alone. So try to get one meal with others at least one time a day with your family, with coworkers, with somebody. Eat one meal a day with others. Here's a big one that really helped me. One hour a day without technology. Turn your phone off. They actually have power buttons, you know. You can actually turn your iPhone off. Did you know that? <laughs> turn your iPhone off or shut the tablet off or close the laptop at least one time a day for one hour. For me, that was revolutionary. That was a big, big deal. So try to do that one time a day. And then this other thing was revolutionary for me. Scripture before phone. When you wake up in the morning, rather than turning over and checking your social media or checking your email or starting to watch videos, start your day with Scripture. Go to your devotion. Go to the Word. And it doesn't have to be an hour-long study, but just spend that time, first off, or however long it, it's appropriate for you, spend it reading the Scripture first thing in the morning. Okay, so those are daily habits that are going to help your relationship with the Lord to refocus on Him and then to love other people, your relationships with others. Now, weekly habits... Okay, one hour of conversation with a friend. Or it could be your spouse. Spend, it could be over a meal. Like that one time a day where you're eating with others, that, that counts. You could spend an hour in conversation. Or, or, or it could just be taking a friend and, and you guys both go to the park and, and walk. Spend an hour of conversation at least one time a week with a friend. And then this is also really tough. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know if I'm there yet. This is tough. Curate your media, which means limit your media to four hours per week. And I know some of the older, older folks here, that's a cinch. But for us younger folks, that's a challenge. Media, he's including this as 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 watching TV shows, movies, YouTube videos, social media, you name it. Anything to do basically with a screen, limit yourself to that for four hours per week. Again, we take in so much media a week, it, it's crazy, it's, it's ridiculous, and it's reworking the way our brains are thinking. So we've got to retrain our habits and our brains and thus our minds and our souls to the rhythm of God in our lives. So we got to get some clutter out, right? So four hours per week of media. And then the third thing may be a little bit alien, but fast from something for 24 hours. Probably 
24 hours a week of fasting from food, which is regular as far as when the Bible talks about fasting, typically it's talking about food. Not just typically, all the time in the Bible it's talking about food. But here, it doesn't have to be, of course, limited to food. You could, you could fast from a hobby. You could fast from social media. You could fast from TV watching for, for 24 hours a week. And the purpose of fasting isn't just to say, well, look what I've done to impress others with self-control. No, it, it's to reorient your focus on the Lord. It's to, like with food, as, you, as you're hungry fasting, you're praying, God, help me to hunger and thirst for you and your righteousness. That's the purpose of fasting. And then the last thing is so important, um, Sabbath. Uh, Sabbath rest. We aren't designed for 24-7. We are actually designed by God from creation for 24-6. We're made for six days of work and activity. You could even say busyness. One day of rest and worship and focus on Him. That is something the church has kind of unfortunately moved on from, the idea of a disciplined Sabbath rest. We've got to bring it back into our lives. If we're going to be spiritually healthy and growing with Christ and, and walking with the pace of God in our lives. What, do, what are things that you do on, on a Sabbath day? Well, if it's work to you, if it's, if it's stressful to you, then you don't do it on the Sabbath day. On a Sabbath day, you only do things that you enjoy, that refresh you, that refocus your attention and worship on the Lord. And I would like to add under this category, Sabbath, you, you may even include this in another level here of weekly habits, but the regular one-time-a-week worship with your church family is imperative. If we're going to grow in Christ and walk with him, we have to walk together as well. The Christian life isn't one of solitary. It's not one of lone wolf improvement. It's living life in community with others. So if the worship service is not a weekly habit or discipline for you, under that weekly column, that needs to be added for sure. Of course, sometimes things will come up and you'll have to miss worship. But that ought to be the exception rather than the norm. It, it ought to be the weekly habit, the, the assembling of together. It, it ought to be the weekly discipline in community with others that, that we all have and share. So I commend these to you. Pick these up. If you're a reader, check out that book, uh, The Common Rule by Justin Early. I promise it will really help you. So as a disciple this morning, what can you do to change in order for you to slow down and walk with God? It may be something like that. It may be something else that God is putting on your heart for you to slow down 
spiritually speaking, get at that three or four mile an hour pace? How can you get clutter and distraction out and reorient and refocus on the Lord? And then secondly, have you begun a walk with God by trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior? So if the life of faith in the Bible is described like walking with God, if you don't have faith, if you haven't ever turned your life over to Christ, then you're walking by yourself. You're walking under your own power and your own initiative. And that just simply will not do because you're still dead in your sins and you're still separated from God. Well, God invites you to turn from your sinful ways. Stop walking by yourself. To trust in his son, Jesus, so that you can be saved. And you can begin to walk in newness of life with him. Are you still living that old way, maybe? And I believe there's probably many people in our culture that do this. They're living in that old way, but they're dressing it up with religion. They may look like they're walking on the outside, but internally they're still dead in their sins. Is that you? Do you need to turn to Christ for salvation this morning? Do you need to begin to walk with God? And it's a beautiful thing as you walk with God. He changes you from the inside out, transforms you so that your life starts to look like Jesus. You live this, this, this curved life where you die daily to yourself and live for him and his kingdom. God wants that for you. Christian, God wants that for you. And the only way that's possible is to slow the pace in your heart to a three or four mile an hour walk. Let's go to him in prayer. Father God, thank you that a life with you is even possible. Thank you for your son. Thank you that he came and he perfectly showed us exactly what it looks like. Thank you that he died. Thank you that he rose again so that we can spend forever with you in heaven, but we can also walk with you right here on earth. And I pray that it, if there's anyone here or, or who listens to this later who doesn't know you, I pray that they would turn and trust and begin to walk with you by your grace. Lord, those of us who do know you, Lord, help us to consider how we can get clutter, how we can get distraction, and how we can get excessive busyness out of our lives so that we can walk at your pace for your glory and kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Will you stand? Will you begin the walk today or will you continue the walk today?